0: let's talk about the debt side for a second, because maybe I'm making an assumption, but my assumption is that many people aren't leveraging debt in that way, directly from the the financier that they're often, uh, they're either selling to private equity and then they might be leveraging some debt or uh, or they're selling equity to uh, a venture capital firm. But it seems like people forget that You don't necessarily have to sell to sell part of your company if you want to get more money to invest in expansion. You can do it the old, you can do it the old fashioned way. One way of getting your technology adapted in the field of reproductive health to advance assisted reproductive technology is to. Build clinics yourself and put it in those clinics. That's what OMA Fertility is doing. I have their co-founders, Sahil Gupta, Gurjeet Singh on, and they they are the co-founders of OMA Fertility and OMA Robotics. They just raised $37.5 million, both in equity through venture capital and in debt. We talk about the pros and cons of, of those two tools. We talk about how debt is often underused and why they were able to get access to more debt than many people can often get from banks. We talk about their strategy of opening new centers as a means of advancing the technology that they're aiming to improve on the lab side, trying to automate the lab, trying to use uh, artificial intelligence to dramatically increase the the productivity and reliability of embryologists. We talk about uh, how they are buying clinics in order to be able to do that, how they're starting clinics de novo, uh, the pros and cons of doing each of those things. So this is an interesting model, guys. I think of all of the AI companies that are coming in and they might have... Excellent value to add, but they're kind of struggling to get adopted. This is one way of doing it. And a lot of people are talking about uh, some of the newer private equity backed fertility networks. I think you might be interested in this. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Sahil Gupta and Gurjeet Singh. Mr. or Dr. Gupta, Mr. or Dr. Singh, Sahil Gurjeet, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks so much for having us. So the the that little joke for the audience was that uh Sahe was a, ha, it, it was trained as a physician and has a PhD in mathematics. They both said they don't normally go by doctor, but guess what? On Inside Reproductive Health, you do. You get the full honor of your previous degrees and training. And the reason why I, I think it was my team that reached out to you all to talk was that as we start to cover more of just what's happening in the field, like more of the current events, uh, the name OMA Fertility popped up. And uh, the name OMA Robotics is associated with that. But I want to stick on the on, on the on OMA Fertility for uh, a second, because uh, I think it, it wasn't really familiar with the group outside of your location, in Southern California, and then saw, uh, oh, they're in St. Louis now. And so uh, you, us deciding where to start this conversation is interesting enough, but let's start there. Where did Oma Fertility come from? And then what's the expansion that's happening? Is it fair to start there?
1: Yeah, that sounds great. I can give you a little backstory on Oma Fertility and, and then I can tell you where we are and where we plan to go. Great. So we, you know, I had a friend uh, of my wife's, a colleague of my wife's, who was going through IVF. They went through six cycles of IVF treatments, didn't succeed, paid about $45,000 a cycle and ended up having to file for a bankruptcy. Uh, You know, it completely destroyed their life. And very coincidentally, as all of this was going on, my wife was helping them think through how to put their life back together. Sahil was visiting us as a family friend. Both Sahil and I had grown up in Delhi in India. And, uh, you know, Sahil as a physician, he had built a chain of IVF clinics in India where they see 15,000 patients a year and do 6,000 cycles a year. And so my wife and I were venting at him about this whole thing. And he said, why don't you come visit a lab? You know, just so you can see how it works. You know, you'll get a sense for perspective. So I went to India, saw an IVF lab and I was just completely blown away. You know, my, I didn't know anything at the time. I'm a mathematician, as you mentioned, my expectation was that you know there would be some science fiction stuff going on behind the scenes you know but it turned out it was like a high school biology lab right it had the same microscopes incubators the same kind of equipment that i had seen in a high school biology setting
0: you were disappointed Um, at the lack of
1: sci-fi yeah i was like i was expecting there would be some science fiction stuff going on there'd be like some sequencers of some sort i mean i was naive i didn't know it (laughs) It was so disappointing I came back to the US. I visited a bunch of labs here because I, I just couldn't believe it. And you know, I was a perhaps they were slightly cleaner in the US the labs, but they had the same exact equipment, the same media, the same manufacturers, the same procedures. And I was like there's something there's something wrong. And then Sile said, you know, he had been going to uh, fertility conferences for a decade and he was like they just don't change. It's just this, the same people show up every year, the same equipment, it just doesn't evolve.
0: So tell me what was wrong other than the aesthetics, other than, okay, that it looks, So tell me what's wrong about it.
1: Yeah. So first of all, nothing is wrong, right? Like the labs are obviously doing well, you know, people who are struggling in, with infertility, babies are getting created, you know, so, so nothing is abjectly wrong. It's just that it felt super manual, right? So when I, when I looked at the embryologist looking under a the microscope, they are literally hunched over, right? Looking at a Petri dish, uh, moving cells around manually with manipulators, uh, it just felt super subjective, right? What if somebody was having a bad day? What if they were tired? What if it was late in the evening and they'd been working since seven in the morning? So, like a lot of the decisions that they were making, uh, with all of their great experience, felt so subjective that anything could go wrong. Right? Like not not even uh, the the intent would always be great, but you could always make a, a you know a mistake. Uh, and so I was just expecting so. it to be more automated. So I-
2: yeah, I just wanted to add that one of the conversations, early conversations we had with, with between us was Lujit asking me, where do embryologists train? Where are training schools? And, you know, I I literally had no answer because, you know, the embryologists actually train inside the labs. And, you know, they are probably the most important part of the IVF process and the lab. and And them having to make, uh, subjective calls was really surprising to him at the time. Like, how could such important decisions be made, you know, subjectively and cannot like are not consistent? So I think that's probably where it started. Where we decided that our focus, you know, as a company, would be to make tools for embryologists to make it more uh, consistent, consistent, in order to give them tools to um, make it more consistent and the results being more consistent.
0: And what are the tools that they needed in your view?
2: So, I, I so, mean, i go on, Tal. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I was trying to break down um, the IVF process into two parts. Uh, the first being, you know, where the embryos are created. And once the embryo uh, embryos are created, the second half is about grading and biopsy. So, I think we, as a company, started to focus on the starting part of the process. On creation of embryos where embryologists have to sort of make this subjective call on which sperm to decide on when they pick it for ICSI. And then ICSI itself, you know, different embryologists train differently. Some are better than others while doing ICSI. So I think these are the, these are the steps we thought were the most subjective and we, we decided to go after them first. So I think, Gujit, if you can talk about more details on the technology, but uh, sperm selection and ICSI are are the first things that we are going after, but our North star as a company is to is to automate the entire thing, and and just have a human in the loop, you know, who can oversee uh, the process.
0: Gajee, what would you add? What what where, where does where does the math background come in?
1: Yeah. So the math background is, right, basically let's do some math. So for sperm selection, as an example, as I was just describing, you know, in a typical IVF cycle, you're dealing with a handful of eggs, let's say 20 eggs. And, you know, the eggs are extremely precious, right? Eggs become embryos. They are physically challenging for the patient. Uh, they are The egg retrievals are obviously financially expensive, emotionally challenging. So eggs are, you know, very, very precious. And you kind of get what you get, right? So the physician works with the patient, you get the eggs that you get, and you have to use all the eggs that you can get your hands on in a cycle, right? On the other hand, on the male side, in a typical healthy male sperm sample, there are a hundred million sperm cells. Also, very typically, 4% normal morphology is considered good, which means that only 4% of those hundred million cells have normal morphology. Today, an embryologist looks at 20 cells, maybe 30 cells, order of 20 to 30 cells out of the 100 million for about 10 seconds before they pick one sperm cell to fertilize an egg. And if you again do the math, right, the probability that 20 cells seen out of 100 million uh, would even contain one of the 4 million normal sperm cells is so abysmally small that it's a... you know, it basically speaks volumes about the robustness of biology that it still works. So that's kind of where the math comes in and using machine learning and AI to help embryologists make the determination what which sperm cells to pick.
0: So, so the lab side is making sense. The AI side is making sense. How the heck does this end you up with a clinic in Southern California and in St. Louis?
1: Yeah. So then I think the main question is what is the best way of building the tech, right? Okay. You've got to, the tech is important to build. uh, And so how do you best build it? And what we, you know, I have, I have done business in healthcare before I've sold into healthcare before. Uh, You know, there's a lot of potential benefit that AI brings to healthcare, which I've seen firsthand in my previous company. And so when we started building OMA, basically we, there's a cold start problem, right? When you start to build this device, you need data to machine to, you know, for machine learning to train the systems. And so we decided that the most efficient way of getting this data would be actually to start a clinic, capture the data, because it need we needed some special hardware that we have developed to do this. So, so we can install the hardware, capture the data, build machine learning systems, and then deploy it in the in the lab and sort of see results in real time and then tweak it so that's kind of how we initially decided on building the clinics but then as we started building we also noticed that patients uh, or families who had gone through ivf in the past you you know we did user interviews we spoke to them even people who had been successful you know felt like they were a number in the system uh they felt like they were just there to enrich the clinic they did not feel empowered or educated. Uh, you know, they felt like they had lost power in sort of going into this whole situation. And so we then decided that we're going to double down and we're going to build a chain of fertility clinics uh, where, you know, we'll bring our technology to bear in in helping embryologists, uh, you know, work consistently uh, as well as serving patients in a a uh, consumer-first, customer-first mindset.
0: Such an interesting, it's an interesting concept because the challenge, well, I've been selling the fertility centers for eight years and I know how difficult it is. I've gotten pretty good at it, but we're just a little client services firm. There are so many tech companies that are, uh, that, you know, they're like, how are we going to get this into use? And you just said, F it, we'll buy it. (laughs) We'll buy one and we'll do it ourselves. So- So, did it start? So, it started with one clinic, the clinic in Santa Barbara? Yeah,
1: yeah, it started with a clinic in Santa Barbara. uh, And we've just started a clinic in St. Louis. Uh, We've actually, we are about to announce an acquisition next week. We've acquired a clinic that's based out of Long Island. Uh, We are building one in Atlanta, we are building one in New York, uh, and then we are hoping to
0: launch two more clinics next year in LA. Yeah. So, Sahil, is this where you're coming in? So, you've done this in, in India before? Was Avea the group that you?
2: Correct. You so, previously, to- you know, yeah, I started uh, Avea in 2015 with one clinic, and affordability was kind of like the core of that clinic as well, and accessibility. And by the time I sold it in 2019, it was a network of eight clinics in India and Nepal. And as Gurjeet mentioned, you know, we started with Santa Barbara, and by the end of March 2023, we'll have seven clinics, seven operational clinics.
0: And so I hope people chart the timeline. When did when did Santa Barbara take its inception?
2: So Santa Barbara started um somewhere in January of 2021. Um, and I think this year we are launching three clinics by the end of this year so atlanta st louis and and new york um go live by the end of this year as Gurjeet mentioned we have acquired a clinic in long island in new york this you know hopefully in the next week or so it'll be live and then we are building the two clinics in la which will go live in march 2023
0: was santa barbara was that an acquisition
2: no no uh, so, uh, so, so apart from Long Island all the other six clinics are sort of de novo so we are building it from the ground up
0: why did you decide to go that route
2: so, so the, I think there are, are so there are multiple there are multiple reasons why we decided to do that first of all I think it's always easier to sign up, sort of bring about the change that we want to in terms of experience when we are building things ground up there's not only uh we also wanted to make the physical space um you know change the digital and both the digital and physical space that we were building i think in terms of um in terms of just the build you know i had experience building these clinics in india so i knew what it takes the systems that are required and then we found great physicians to partner with, with whom we could, um, you know, launch these clinics from, from ground up.
0: Oh, why do you, I'm asking you to speculate about other folks, but most of the people coming into unless they're already an established group, most of them are going acquisition. Why do you think more people haven't tried the VC venture capital de novo route?
1: So I think, from a venture capital perspective, right, the um, to do the de out, you have venture capitalists. Model requires some tech innovation, right? It requires some step change that you can foresee in the future. Uh, and so I think if you are just going to start fertility clinics without any tech innovation uh, inside it, that can lead to a step change in the uh, you know along some metric. You know, it's not a venture scale business otherwise.
0: So wh- what about you, si? you, you, you've done this before uh, is, is, is this a model that could be that, that we're going to see more replicate? Like, are we going to see uh, companies like Cooper, for example, or, or whoever the new AI companies, whoever, you know, uh, IBM might spin off of a healthcare division. Are they going to start going this route of, of, of build, of, Okay, we want to get our technology adapted, and we want to have a full tech stack. We're gonna build. We're gonna build the clinics ourselves.
2: So again, um, you know, as you had mentioned, there's been a lot of private equity, um, you know, activity in this space over the last three four years. And I think when when there is private equity, there's a lot of roll up acquisitions, as you had mentioned, and a lot of groups trying that i think as gurjeet mentioned with venture capitalists there has to be some underlying tech that fundamentally changes or disrupts the industry which we believe we are doing and i think if other groups come up with you know similar or other ideas there there might be you know similar companies in the future but i think we have the right mix uh, as a company as um you know with with a team we are we have been able to put together over the last couple of years that we, we see ourselves growing with both de novo and Acquisitions over the next couple of years. Uh,
0: how are you going to interact with those fertility centers? How will OMA Robotics sell to service fertility centers that are not a part of the OMA Fertility Partnership?
1: so our plan is that our technology and devices are for exclusive use of oma clinics we are not selling our technology or devices into any other clinics and don't plan to either but uh, there are several clinical practices across the us you know where the practice is great but we do but they don't have their own lab or they want to use a third party lab so we definitely want to approach clinical practices, you know, that don't have their own lab or want to switch labs or want to use our technology to come use our labs. Uh, so that we are okay with, but we are not—we uh, are not selling technology into any other clinic.
0: Tell me about that but decision.
1: I
2: think, I, I think part of which, um, part of what we are building, and we have seen in different clinics in larger chains, is that if you go to, let's say, an ABC clinic on the East Coast versus the, like the same ABC clinic on the West Coast, their results are different. Just because you know they have the same name, but results are different from in all their clinics just because of the embryologist, so or could be any a number of reasons. We believe that we are building a network. It doesn't matter if you go to St. Louis or Santa Barbara or New York, you are going to get the same consistent OMA results and same consistent OMA. Experience And that's going to be our differentiator as we continue to build our own clinics and acquire clinics that have similar um, mindset or clinics that align with our mission and vision.
0: You don't see any application within the robotics other than the entire lab itself, but we could license this technology to these other. Surely you must have had that discussion with each other. Hey, let's break off this piece. Let's license it. What was that conversation like? When you decided against that,
2: our north star as a company, with in terms of building tech, is full automation. And I think till that time we reach there, this this isn't a conversation that you know we want to have with 10 We we want to make sure that uh, we are able to build all these steps along the way. And I think when at at full automation, then there is a conversation to be had. With other clinics or clinics outside the US where we might be willing to, you know, probably sell it to other clinics outside or inside the US.
0: You talked about it a little bit before, but I think I need a clearer picture of what do you mean when you say full automation?
1: Yeah, I think that's uh all, all we can say on that at this point is we see a future in which we sort of build uh, much, much more automated devices that do more than uh, just sperm selection or just to automatic seed. Uh, we want to sort of build more of the automation in the embryology process uh, to help embryologists basically get consistent results, even outside of just the fertilization and sperm selection that we are focused today.
0: So this is on the lab side. What about on the clinic side?
1: Yeah, I think thus far, I think AI has a role to play on the clinic side. And what we uh, what we are planning to do is we are planning on um, mining data from the clinic to help physicians with better protocols uh, or to kind of have a better standard of care that we deliver to our patients. But at this stage, our focus is squarely on on the lab side.
0: So if you're not selling to clinics... Uh, and and you're not like y- y- you said for those clinics that don't have labs or they want to switch labs that that that's an opportunity. But if if you're not going to be selling to clinics, how much of other companies will be you be using in your labs?
1: Yeah, so if, for example, if you look at our Oma Lab today, it looks it basically I'm you know a little horrified to say it looks the same as any other lab, except that our devices are kind of you know built inside the microscopes and so on. So we've we buy equipment off the shelf and then we install our hardware inside that equipment. So it, from, from the external viewpoint, it looks exactly the same, but kind of all the magic is inside.
0: Oh, so And are you working with, so like embryoscope tomorrow, are those companies that are using the tomorrow tank? Are, are those things that you all are using?
1: Not yet. We, we want to. And so we are in discussions with tomorrow. Um, and you know we are we are optimistic we can get to an agreement.
0: The discussion is the discussion about how does our stuff talk to your stuff and vice versa.
1: Yeah, how does our stuff work to your stuff, uh, and and just the the business terms, right? Yeah. So
0: go ahead, Sahil. I
2: was saying um, you know a lot of our uh, value proposition for our patients is about accessibility and affordability. So that's the other thing we have to uh, think about while we, you know, form these partnerships, if we are able to, you know, pass on savings to our customers and to our patients as
0: well. Are you focused on the United States right now? Are you also working on opening places in India and elsewhere?
1: Yeah, we are focused in the U.S., uh, but we have done partnerships with some third-party agencies that are international.
0: what about things that are are not involved with the, the lab tech stack? Because you're doing this for your own clinics as well. What about the uh, EMR? Do you have your own EMR? Or are you using a, one of the others?
1: No, we don't have our own EMR. We just use the, uh, we use EIVF as of now. Um, and we don't plan to build an
0: EMR system. How about things on the financial side, like uh, like uh, patient financing or the 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 guarantee backings or employer benefits? Is that in your f- future scope?
1: We do. We have partnered with uh, a company in LA called CapexMD, um, and we offer financing to our cons- our you know families that work with us through CapexMD. Uh, and on the benefit side, we currently don't have any plans on going on the benefit side.
0: So for you all, it's it really has to do with this this lab focus and then the patient experience in the clinic. How how are you getting docs? Everybody's fighting for doctors right now, and uh, and you're three years old as a company. So how are you how are you getting docs for these new clinics that you're opening?
1: we are 2 years old uh, and with that I'm sahil <laughs> sahil is a dog whisperer so i'll let sahil answer so
2: i think everybody in the industry knew that this is there's you know there's disruption coming um, everybody has been excited about it you know and i think whenever i talk to doctors 100% of them actually get intrigued by what we are building but when they see our devices working in our labs, that's when really, you know, they're... You can um, see their eyes open
1: up, right? Yes,
2: there's, there's like so much enthusiasm in in them willing to talk and wanting to, you know, start the discussion of joining the network. And in general, I think we are trying to do things differently. I truly believe that OMA clinics are different considering like I've I've seen a lot of clinics in India. I've seen a lot of clinics in the U.S., and I think when we present our vision to our doctors, they get really excited. And thus far, you know, the doctors that are working with us are super happy with with what they are seeing and what we are building. And I think we are getting a lot of referrals from our existing doctors. So three of the doctors that we have hired are referrals from our existing doctors. And I, I think generally there's enthusiasm to join a company that, that is disruptive. And I think uh, many of our docs are also aligning on on the mission of accessibility. I think it's, it's important work. Um, you know, access in the US is a problem. Only 2.1% of the births happen via IVF compared to let's say 10% uh, births in, in Denmark where IVF is free. Um, so I think uh, it's important for a lot of people to solve the access issue as well.
0: Let's talk about the access issue because a lot of people say that they want to solve that issue. And then some people say you're not solving for it at all. There's still the bottleneck and and there's at least two bottlenecks. One is the, the bottleneck of REIs. There's only 1,100 in the United States. And so we've had that discussion about top of license, about what, you can train obgyn's and advanced providers to do. And then there's also the 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 bottleneck in the lab and mean the shortage of embryologists. And I will tell you guys how blown away I am about how many young embryologists want to get the heck out of the lab. They're applying jobs, like at my firm, like marketing jobs. And I'm like, why are you, everybody's trying to hire an embryologist. Why are you applying here? And it, some version of, we don't want to stand in a box all day. We don't, we, we just don't want to stand here all day. So there, so there's, you already have a shortage of embryologists and then you have a young embryologist wanting to get out of the lab. And as Dr. Carol Kircho pointed out on the show, So many of these labs are run by like five lab directors that oversee multiple labs, and they're going to be retiring in the next half decade. And so let's talk about the lab bottleneck first. How is the AI going to solve for, are, are you going to be able to do more cases? How are you going to solve for the lab bottleneck?
1: Yeah, on the lab part, the main way of scaling the embryology lab is by building more AI robotics and more automation. And that's kind of what we are working on. So we we sort of foresee a future in which, you know, most of what happens in an IVF lab is automated. Um, and, you know, you basically build systems that bring out the best in human embryologists. Uh, but then also since you automate the physical tasks uh, that you know you you require fewer of them and maybe they can even be remote that's that's kind of what our vision for the future of the embryology
0: lab is it's, it's massively automated. And so then though you would you would still hit the other bottleneck if, if let's and and that and the clinic bottleneck happened first by the way. the lab bottleneck really didn't happen until late 2020 early 2021 in my view that for the most part there were there were many clinics that were they were they were okay at capacity for new patients but they still felt like they could have converted more to treatment and then by the end of 2020 early 2021 is when people said we can't even convert more even if we converted more to treatment we don't have the lab space or the lab staff to be able to 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 fulfill all those cycles. And so what, if most of your tech stack is focused on the lab side, you, you solve this lab bottleneck, how will you improve access to care?
2: You know, just, just adding one more thing to the lab part. I think there is enough, you know, there can be enough embryologists. I think the the problem is um, with with all the apprenticeship that happens to make them skilled. So, we are also making a lot of tools that could, you know, junior embryologists could use and still get the similar or uh, consistent results that a, you know, top five percentile embryologist would get. Um, talking about the clinic, I think one of the things that I was surprised or almost shocked to know when when I moved uh, from India is that the average number of cases that an REI does is about 150 to 200. So that was very, that sounded very low. So we actually spent a lot of time with REIs, with physicians and, and really like what we did was to map their time out, uh, what, you know, most of their time looked like. And, and most of the time actually went into tasks that were not related to clinical practice so i think what we have done in our oma clinics is to actually take a lot of the tasks from the clinics uh to our central or to our head office remotely and for example we are not doing a lot of it like billing hr um you know a lot of our chart reviews are offline uh you know even um you know, some, some of the stuff that was traditionally done inside a clinic uh, is now done remotely by our you know central team. And I think what it has done is that it's made the physicians do things that they love doing, which is to see patients. So our physicians basically focus on three things just to see patients and do the procedures. And just for example, in Santa Barbara, our throughput for the physician Right now is roughly about 400 cycles a year. And it, it doesn't feel to him that, you know, he's working like longer hours, it's just the same amount of time. We are just running this more efficiently and taking a lot of this in-house to in, in our central office.
0: What do, what are your views on using advanced providers in this mechanism? So by by advanced practice provider, I mean nurse practitioners and physician assistants.
2: So I think that's one of the things that we are using a lot in our clinics. Um, For example, in our clinics, we've also hired ultrasound techs that would do all the monitoring. Um, You know, the physician doesn't, we feel like there's important touch points in which the physician has to be you know, there for the patient and only those important touch points or milestones the physician would meet meet the patient. And the rest of the time, either it's the ultrasound tech or nurse practitioners that will um, deliver the care to the patient. I think one more thing that I wanted to talk about why we are unique is that we have two points of contact for our patients. One in our remote team, what we call the care advocate and there's a point of contact in the clinic. So each time a patient goes to the clinic, they only meet this person who sort of project manages their cycle or their treatment inside the clinic. Similarly, when they're not in the clinic, they're only dealing with one person outside of the clinic who project manages their treatment and gets them all the answers that they need. So from the patient experience side, it doesn't feel like you know they're they're just a number and we make sure that they they all their questions are answered and they are you know taken care of throughout the process
0: i should have asked sahil and gurjeet if they use engaged md so if the oma fertility people are listening right now this is my question to you if you're using engaged md and i was thinking after we're recording then i'll Then I'll ask them, and I I forgot, because when I think of a group like this that purports to improve the patient experience, it's become so clear from talking to clinic manager, practice director, medical director, nursing manager, after the other, one right after the other, of how engaged MD is no longer just... A business plus, like it might have been if it were around 15 years ago, but it's now part of the standard of care that patients have so much on their plate and they're so overwhelmed and putting a stack of papers in front of them right now and trying to condense a whole course of information into a 30, 40, 60 minute consult. It's just so unfair. And then not giving them the opportunity to customize that to themselves. It's so hard on the patient that it's now part of the standard of care that engaged MD is able to provide to patients. Most recently, I've been talking about engaged MD's benefits for. Nurses, staff, providers, because those are the people that are texting me talking about how much they love the platform, how much time it saves them, how much nursing time you can get back by using engaged MD and provider time that you can get back and time, clerical time from tracking down informed consents that, by the way, aren't as informed as they are when they're through a module like engaged MD I've spent so much time talking about this on your staff side that I forget to talk about the patient benefits and if you go online and look at engaged MD's reviews from the patient side it's overwhelming how empowered engaged MD makes them feel and so you can get the benefits from your staff side the benefits from the patient side. It's one of the quickest and biggest wins that you can do for your practice. If you're not already using Engage MD, this goes for my friends at Omaha Fertility, but it goes for everybody listening. Go on over to engagedmd.com/slash griffin. They will give you a free workflow assessment. They're going to show you what it looks like that you're doing, that other clinics are doing. That's free. Whether you decide to move forward with Engage MD or not, after that, either one is going to be valuable. you're going to get value out of it. EngagedMD.com slash Griffin. Now back to the show. What about training OBGYNs to be able to do retrievals and then you can have more doctors and then a board certified REI oversees those cases. That's been that people are um, often on one side of the fence or the other about that. And a lot more people are on the OBGYN side of the fence now than, than there were five years ago. And there are people that are vehemently opposed to that. Dr. Annette Brower was on the show and, and, and she said that we, how, why are we even talking about this? And so there are some people that feel like that's a, a big Risk. Other people think that it's it's a very minimal risk and it's necessary to expand the clinical side of care and that REI should be practicing at the top of their license. Where do you all fall on that?
2: I think we are on the side of um, you know having OBGYNs do as much uh, or train them. But I think as a company, we've decided not to do it thus far and i think it's a decision we have taken collectively along with our positions and we are open to changing that in the future but for now we've decided to stick to our guys.
0: so you're so well that and that's a smart way of doing it by the way sahil is, is is because people have said that they're categorically against it and then they come and and when necessity merits it they they end up doing it. Did you go with that decision because so you you think it's necessary to expand access to care, but you just don't feel ready to do it at this point?
2: I think for us, it's, uh, it's we have to first ramp up all our clinics um, to sort of be at a level where we are running full capacity and we can test the elasticity of you know how many um, cycles we can go with a single physician, and I think. After that, you know, we, we are in that position where if we have to expand even with a single physician, we might look at other options.
1: Also, I think from a training perspective, right, we are not in the training game, right? We are, uh, like, in some sense, if there is, you know, there is a future in which, you know, there's an exceptional ob who has learned to sort of do retrievals and transfers and are great at the craft, at, at medicine, uh, I, I think we would absolutely consider them uh, having them in our network, but we are not in the game of training Obigains to becoming uh, REIs. Mm-hmm.
2: So, so or doing procedures. I think it's it's as as I said, we are open to it, but we're not doing it right now.
0: Okay. Yeah. Uh, so then, tell me a bit about the the fundraising that you've done, and that was what caught my attention because as inside reproductive health we want to be start becoming more of the the news media outlet and, and just covering some of these things and and that's part of what made me reach out and so you raised 37 and a half million dollars some of it is in equity and some of it is in debt. Our audience is mostly used to talking about private equity and they've heard me, Hammer the definitions in their mind. Private equity typically taking controlling stake of businesses, typically mature businesses, typically uh, uh, in an exit plan of a couple years. Uh, venture capital usually not taking a controlling stake, usually for something that's new and uh, and aiming to scale. Um, and so, talk to us a little bit about. The, this mix? Why why this much in debt? Because I don't know if, if people are, are not. De- and so by debt financing, is that from one of the VC partners or that's the old fashioned way from a bank?
1: It's from our bank. It's our banking partner, Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, and again, I've had a long relationship with them. They were our bankers in my previous company as well. And so the debt that we have taken, it's not like a private equity model. It's like a very standard, you can think of it as a more flexible loan, if you will, right? So it's uh, it essentially does not dilute us from an equity perspective. And to the sort of, you know, if you are able to get clinics up and running and scaled and profitable, you know, you can easily pay off the debt um, and then continue building.
0: So let's talk about, let's talk about the debt side for a second, because maybe I'm making an assumption, but my assumption is that many people aren't leveraging debt in that way, like directly from the the financier that they're often, uh, they're either selling to private equity and then they might be leveraging some debt or, uh, or they're selling equity to a venture capital firm. But it seems like people forget that you don't necessarily have to sell to sell part yeah. of your company if you want to get more money to invest in expansion you can do it the old you can do it the old-fashioned way and just borrow some yeah. good, borrow some it. good old money and pay some good old interest so why aren't people doing that more
1: uh, because i think it's difficult right so banks typically don't underwrite too much risk so in fact in our case right the reason why silicon valley bank has been comfortable with this is a we've had relationships our investors have relationships with them i have relationships with them but then, B, you know, at the same time, we also raised a bunch of money in equity capital. So, you know, they were convinced that, you know, one way or another, they would get their money and their interest back. So, I think if you did not, if we did not have the equity raise done, uh, we would not. It would be very difficult to get this level of debt.
0: Did they happen concurrently, or did the twenty-nine million raise in equity happen first?
1: I mean it technically happen first, but call it within two weeks of each other. Like it's uh, pretty concurrent.
0: And, and why Silicon Valley? I mean, normally that question would be obvious, but because you've had such experience and, and you have relationships and partners in New Delhi, I assume that there's a, and again, I'm assuming, so you might take me to church right now and I'm totally wrong, but that there is a burgeoning venture capital, uh, ecosystem in New Delhi. One, am I wrong about that? If I'm not wrong about that, why Silicon Valley?
1: Why are we building the company in Silicon Valley or why did we take what, that- what,
0: what, Why Why raise the money there? Why not raise the money from the, the venture capital ecosystem in New Delhi?
1: Okay. So I think first of all, the, the venture capital ecosystem in Silicon Valley is beyond compare. There is no other place in the world which is anywhere near
0: still market. still, even in 2022. Oh, yeah. even yeah, I
1: mean,
0: even Singapore, Hong Kong, they're still
1: nowhere close. no, no, no yeah.
0: one's no one's touching them.
1: No, no, there are there are venture capital <laughs> firms and you know they it's they have VCS and they are growing and so on. But if you look at the deal volume, the investor experience, you know, the the deal terms are stand like there's a lot of uh, muscle memory that we've built up in Silicon Valley. To actually get deals like this done easily and painlessly. Right? And the other answer is that we live here, so yeah, that's right. Always
0: live awesome. <laughs> we go next door and we can do you, this. Why? You you both live in the Bay Area?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yes. So so why why did you start in Santa Barbara then? Why not start in in Northern California? Yeah, that's
1: actually a great question. So when we first started out, right? Remember when we decided on starting our Santa Barbara clinic? We were, we were like three guys and a dog and we did not have the dog yet. So like we didn't have any resources right? we had. uh, So, you know, we, we went out, looked for physicians. Uh, We were very lucky. We found Dr. Richlik in Santa Barbara and, you know, he saw the vision with us uh, and, and he took some risk to join us.
0: Did you get your dog?
1: I did. He's (laughs) like him. Yeah, I think uh, one of
2: one of the other reasons for choosing Santa Barbara was, you know, there's an interesting mix of um, you know diversity in population in Santa Barbara in surrounding areas. So it was a uh, interesting experiment for us to learn where most of our customers would come from, and you know um, that that was one of the other reasons.
0: Yeah, uh, I wanna get an education from you, about what makes Silicon Valley so much more robust and developed than other venture capital ecosystem, because most of our audience, they're not used to us talking about VC. And I think this will be interesting to them as well. I would have thought that there's no way that that Silicon Valley or I, not that there isn't a way, but I just would have thought that they Likely wouldn't have had the same differential advantage that they would have had 20 years ago to the whatever this the VC ecosystem is in Hong Kong and Singapore and New Delhi and London and uh and New York and but but it sounds like it's still very much the place and and by a long shot so what are the things that make it so much more uh developed and robust for entrepreneurs.
1: So I think the the first thing is that a lot of silicon valley is is still run by operators, right? So these are people who have operated companies in the past, who have experience uh and you know when they when they sort of grow up or like you know maybe are not in an operational role anymore, you know they they have a great home in various venture capital firms to go start operating there. But then I think second there's just muscle memory, right? So there are you know, if you're going to do a seed financing or a series A financing, a lot of the terms uh, are pretty common and people know them. While, for example, I have a friend, you know, who's based out of Switzerland as an example, and Zurich has a venture venture capital ecosystem. But, you know, the, the deal terms that they get there are very, very different, right? The amount of dilution, uh, you know, if in in many european venture ecosystems if you go for a financing meeting typically the investors will ask you okay how much are you putting in uh right and in silicon valley things are different right where you know if a company is great and obviously only the great companies get invested in uh you know then there's a fight (laughs) there's a fight about you know how much money can you put into the company uh to be on the cap table so in, in like in other words right risk capital is something that's sort of everywhere in silicon valley it's, it's what people you know talk about it, it's what they live and breathe it's kind of like if you're going to make movies is there a better ecosystem to be uh you know than in la or if you want to be in finance is there a better place to be compared to let's say new york or london maybe uh, there isn't right because that's what that's people are used to those uh to that ecosystem they have muscle memory they know how to get deals done um and there's a concentration. So, like the number of uh, investors who are available, you know, call it within a stone's throw in Silicon Valley is, you know, beyond compare.
0: So, what was the fundraising process like? Because you had previous relationships, but are you going to multiple f- firms? Are you pitching all over the place? What's that like?
1: Yeah. So, again, it, um, you know, it depends. In our case, we, we had relationships with Root Ventures uh, and and Jazz Ventures, and you know we met. You know when you're raising money, uh, since in Silicon Valley, finding uh, people who who know and want to do deals is um, certainly with relationships is not that difficult. The main thing that you optimize for is that you want people who are with you on the journey who buy the same vision that you have. And will support sort of the build, uh, the build of the company and the growth of it. And you know, in Root Ventures and Jazz Ventures, we certainly found partners who are super like-minded, see the same future that we do, uh, and you know, and you know wanted to help us, you know, build the company.
0: So what are you going to do with this 37 and a half million dollars? So you're buying clinics. That's, that's part of it. Or you're starting, you're, you're, yeah. you're buying a clinic on long Island. The other six you're starting or, ha- or have started yourselves. What else are you going to use the money for?
1: So a significant amount of the financing is basically earmarked for research and development, right? We are building more devices, We've been public about our sperm selection device uh, that's already being used in our clinics, uh, but we are building more devices to, you know, automate parts of embryology.
0: And that sperm that sperm selection device is not going to be available to any other groups until the lab is fully automated. Is that my understanding? That right?
1: Uh, we'll see. I think it's in the foreseeable future. We are not selling it. <laughs>
0: So okay, so there's more R and D. Is there more fundraising to be done in the near future?
1: There's always more fundraising. <laughs> if you, <ask> any CEO, <laughs> you know, every CEO is always raising money, and <laughs> so yeah, there will be more fundraising.
0: Uh, if you ask any CEO, would they say that an uh, that IPO is the the end journey too? Is that is that on your horizon?
1: Yeah. So I think an IPO is a tool, right? It's a tool. Uh, to kind of raise a type of capital uh to you know basically go after a type of growth. And I think certainly that's something that's on our radar, right? We want to grow the company and build the company. And at a certain scale, we see that we will need an amount of money that will be viable with an IPO. So it's a it's a means to an end. It's not a it's kind of not a destination in and of itself.
0: What about when you get big enough? Yeah, so so now you all are in the game and because you're making De Novo Clinics, you're, you're full network yourself. So now there's Oma Fertility, there's Pinnacle, there's CCRM, which as we're speaking, I see just bought IRMS uh, in New Jersey. Uh, there's IV, uh, there's US Fertility, Inception Prelude, First Fertility, whom I forget, I'm forgetting somebody and they're going to be pissed off, Boston IVF. Uh, and so- they're not all just gonna. They're, they're they're not all just gonna remain independent. The fertility partners. They're not all gonna remain independent networks. Some of them are going to merge with each other, and and maybe yeah. some of them will be cashless mergers. I I suspect that most of them will be acquisitions. But uh, is that in in your? So you said you 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 know you want to. Have this full control of the lab, and and you'll work with clinics if they're building a a new lab. But would you would you acquire a group, and and update all of their labs?
1: I mean, absolutely. It's a question of capital, right? If we have the capital, then yeah, absolutely, that's a super attractive option. I, I, I think
2: I, I, um, um, you know, one thing is capital, and we also need to make sure that we are aligned on on what we are building i think again like i'll i'll pull back and say you know if the leadership of whoever we are merging with is not aligned on access or affordability that's something that that might not be a good fit for us in terms of um, an acquisition or um, so we we would continue to look for partners that believe in a lot of our core values and we we want to make sure that we partner with the right people and one more thing that I wanted to add is I, I think we also want to make sure that you know the physicians are aligned, and we want to make sure that you know we we create an e- ecosystem for them in in which they thrive. I think I've heard this a lot from a lot of physicians that we have interviewed. they They've been burned by uh, a lot of the deals that are happening happened in the in the past uh, couple of years, and I think we want to make sure. That we create a system or an ecosystem in, in which they are also taken care of.
0: Uh, tell me a bit about the brand. What's the significance behind Oma?
1: Yeah, so Oma is a is a special word. You know, it uh, in uh, in Sanskrit it means the giver of life. Uh, in many languages it means mother or grandmother. So we we love the name. It's uh, it's a very caring name. Uh, and we believe it. It sort of uh, espouses our uh, our value of of caring for our patients above everything else. Uh, and if you you know pair the name Oma alongside our logo, you will notice our logo is built of dots, and then there is one dot that we have highlighted. And so that dot, that sort of thought process behind that is that it's a, it's a notion of going from many to one, which sort of signifies You know, it's a it's a story of IVF, right? You have to go from many eggs to one embryo from you know two people being sufficient to make a child to sort of taking a team of people to make a child and so i think it's sort of this notion of many to one is embedded in our logo and we knew kind of that we wanted the logo to be scientific and precise uh and so that's why we chose a name which was uh which you know emanated a sense of care and empathy
0: i, I want to let each of you conclude uh knowing that our audience is mostly fertility doctors, execs in the field, uh, at practice owners. That's that's mostly who listens to this show. And I've asked you so much today about venture capital, about uh, the advantage or disadvantage of using debt, of uh, your plans for the lab, of the bottlenecks in the clinic and the, the lab as well. So, I probably didn't ask you something that I could have. So I will let each of you conclude the way you'd like to.
2: Sail, you first. Okay. So I think about, let me talk about OMA. Um, We started OMA with a mission to democratize IVF. I think we believe in a world in which whoever wants to have a child and cannot get pregnant naturally gets access to high quality consistent um, care, you know, through our clinics, leveraging our technology. I want to end it by by calling out to like all your listeners, especially doctors and, um, you know, physicians to come talk to us. We want to build a network with all, with all of you and, um, you know, with, with people who align with our mission. And we we are acquiring practices, especially smaller practices, and would would also love to chat about that as well sorry it's it's a, it's
1: a bit of a plug <laughs> what i would say is look we uh you know there are there are three kind of key things that we care about we want to get our patients successful in as few cycles as possible that's why we are building our tech we want to provide empathetic care uh human centered care where we educate our patients uh, and we give them support all along their journey. Uh, and third, we want to make IVF accessible. Right. These are the three things that we are after. So to that end, similar to what Sahil was saying, anybody who you know listens to your to this show and, and is interested in you know working with us, jamming with us, talking to us, uh in in whatever capacity we are super interested in in sort of uh connecting. Second, what I would say is that you know personally I believe um I, you know, I believe that we are kind of at the very beginning of the beginning, right? We are sort of looking at this process, uh, as in particularly in the lab, as, as something that people do today, and we are building engineering to, you know, help and make it more consistent. Uh, but we, but we see a future in which sort of this notion of operating on single cells, uh, using robotic devices, similar to what we are building is going to have many, many other applications. Uh, and, uh, we are excited for that any academics or scientists who are listening to the show who are interested in that you know or need help uh, we are happy to connect
0: I suspect a couple of them will. So we'll we'll uh, link to each of you uh, your LinkedIn profiles in the in the show notes, and and maybe people will reach out, or they can email me Griffin dot and I'll make an email connection. I'll be happy to make an intro if if uh, some of you that I know would like to talk to our guests today. Saurabh Gupta, Gurjeet Singh, thank you so much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health.
1: Thanks for having us. We appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so
2: much.